Hey everyone, Jason Malone here. Welcome to the Jesus on Display podcast. Before we begin today's content, I wanted to say thanks for supporting us here at Fellowship Greenville with your gifts and your generosity. Because of your giving, we get to share resources like this podcast with you to help reach you wherever you are in your life with Jesus. If you'd like to support the ministry of Fellowship Greenville, you can head to fellowshipgreenville.org forward slash give to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. David shows up to play for Saul without Saul knowing that David has been anointed to become the future king by Samuel. And you know what else we're told in chapter 16, which we're not gonna unpack here today? We are told that Saul loved David and made him his armor bearer and his lyre musician on call. Chapter 17, we're introduced to a Philistine giant, real tall smack talker. Everybody is terrified of him except for David. Saul lets David face off against the giant that goes by the name Goliath and David kills him. Uh, this is not, yeah, it's 18. Saul's son, Jonathan, who would have been the next in line to his dad's throne, actually becomes best friends with David. Ah, a twist in the plot. Saul had loved David, we're told. Jonathan, it tells us here, loves David. And it also says in chapter 18 that all of Israel and all of Judah loves David. Everybody's loving David. But chapter 18 is where we also begin to read of Saul's jealousy and his envy towards David. There was a song that was sung by some ladies in chapter 18, and the song went like this. Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. And Saul didn't like it. Well, you're saying David's better than me, right? And he started to look at David a little bit differently. In chapter 18, David is playing his lyre and Saul starts throwing spears at him. Get a load of this verse. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day to day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I'm gonna pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice pretty wild, right? And here's just a reminder for us. Undealt with sin's a killer. Or as John Owen was famous for saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Saul had an issue, right? Of envy when it came to David. And he didn't deal with it when the song started to be sung by all the ladies singing the praises of David. And before you know it, he is either plotting the murder of David or attempting to murder David and we'll see here soon enough, it continues time and time and time again. Before we jump into 19, uh, I'll take a moment and speak to this. Oftentimes, uh, envy and jealousy, those words are used interchangeably. If you look up the definition of envy, this is what you would read, I thought it was pretty interesting. A painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with the desire to possess that same advantage. And envy and jealousy aren't just here in this passage. Those of you that may be uh, familiar with your Bible, think about it. Cain was jealous of Abel. Esau was very envious of Jacob. You had the whole situation of Joseph and his brothers. Tons of jealousy. Maybe just maybe, as we keep going today, maybe you recognize it in your own life. I get it. Not necessarily to the point of throwing spears and trying to kill someone. But do you ever have the thoughts of how other people have it better? than you from your perspective? Do you have a challenge of being able to celebrate the blessing of someone else when you think you should be blessed like they've been blessed? I mean, with the world that we are living in where every moment can be tweaked and manipulated and then posted for all to see, if you're honest, envy and jealousy might be so common to you 
that you don't really contemplate that it's always sitting there with you. And as it sits there with you, it's constantly whispering this, God owes you something. Because I do believe at the heart of envy and jealousy is really that thought, God owes you something. Like you might think that envy and jealousy is with the person who has the things or the life that you wish you had. But if you believe that God could have given you what they have and your life could be better from your perspective, physically, monetarily, career-wise, with your relationships, if you believe that God could have done that and God didn't do that, but he did that for them, then your real issue is with him when envy shows up, not with them, God owes me. And I believe acknowledging what our real issue is and who our real issue is with is critical to dealing with envy and jealousy when it crouches at our door. And I'll even say this on the front end, not something that it's never there anymore. I think when the temptation is there though, how do you respond to that? More on that in a few minutes. Here's how Saul's undealt with jealousy and envy continued to play out as we just kind of walk through chapter 19. What had been Saul in chapter 18 throwing some spears at David turns into Saul calling a, a meeting of all of his family and all of his staff. Come one, come all, come all my servants. And he orders them, kill David. And here again, we see Jonathan, he's watching out for David, even though, again, I alluded to this earlier, I'll say it again. Jonathan is the one who has the most to gain if David dies because Jonathan's heir to his dad's throne. Here's the deal. Jonathan's real smart, diplomatic, a little older, a little wiser, yeah? He talks with his dad and he reminds him of all David had done, not only to personally help Saul out, but all he had done for Israel. Dad, don't you remember? Like he killed Goliath. Yeah, how can you? And now you wanna kill him? There appears to be some sort of reconciliation here because David is now back serving in the court. I don't know how excited David would be about that since last time he was hanging out, some spears were being chucked at him, but whatever, I'll come back, I guess. But it's really short-lived because look in verse eight. War broke out again after that. David led his troops against the Philistines. He attacked them with such fury that they all ran away. So per the usual with David, he has great military success time and time again. And then verse nine says, but one day when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, <laughs> the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again as David played his harp. Saul hurled his spear at David, but David dodged out of the way and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. Now here's the deal. Think about this, this is true, this happened. If I were David, I'd have been looking for where the spear was in location to where Saul was every time I was hanging around Saul, right? Every time I walked into the room to play some tunes. Hey Saul, where are you? Where's your spear that you keep chucking at me, yeah? And there's a bit of irony here in the fact that in the Hebrew, the same verbs are used to describe David attacking the Philistines and them fleeing in verse eight that I just read here in verse 10 of Saul attacking David and him fleeing. David defeating the Philistines once again only to be treated like a Philistine and fleeing for his life as he interacts with Saul. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill, there it is. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. David's wife warned him, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead by morning. So she helped him climb out through a window he fled and escaped. Then she took an idol, she put it in the bed, covered it with blankets, put a cushion of goat's hair on its head. When the troops came to arrest David, she told him he was sick, couldn't get out of bed. 
But Saul sent the troops back to get David. He ordered him, bring him to me in his bed so I can kill him. But when they came to carry David out, they discovered that it was only an idol in the bed with a cushion of goat's hair as his head. And then Saul's like, why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy escape? That's what he's asking of his daughter. To which she says, uh, he threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. So David escaped and he went to Ramah to see Samuel. Now that's gonna be about three miles away. He told him all that Saul had done to him. And then Samuel took David with him to live at Nioth. And when the report reached Saul that David was at Nioth and Ramah, he sent troops to capture him. Well, I'll just get him there, he thinks. But when they arrived and saw Samuel leading a group of prophets who were prophesying, the spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also began to prophesy. And when Saul had heard what happened, he sent other troops, but they too prophesied. And guess what? It happened again a third time. Verse 22, finally Saul himself went to Ramah, arrived at the great well, Siku, where are Samuel and David, he demanded. They're at Nioth and Ramah, someone told him. But on the way to Nioth and Ramah, the spirit of God came upon Saul. He too began to prophesy all the way to Nioth. And he tore off his clothes and lay naked on the ground all day, all night, prophesying in the presence of Samuel. And the people who were watching exclaimed, what, is even Saul a prophet? It's a crazy story. This time around is Samuel who's saving David's life. It was Jonathan, is his wife, and now is Samuel. And this interaction, here's a real interesting interaction. I think what we see time and time again is what, with all the soldiers coming to get him, is you see God's word going up against Saul's soldiers, and God's word wins every time. And that includes when Saul himself showed up to try and get David and winds up laying naked on the ground and prophesying. Author Tim Chester says it this way, the word prophesying is often used of a prophet giving a word from God but it can also be described as a frenzy like you see back in verse 10 and 11 when Saul's prophesying and that included him hurling a spear at David. The idea of being given over to a spirit of misery and bitterness. So the implication is prophesying involves coming under the influence of a spirit that might be the spirit of God and lead to proclaiming God's word. It also might be frenetic loss of control given over to a spirit of misery and bitterness is what we see here with Saul. And it's interesting because I think we've talked about it a good bit, but I wanted you to see it. There's this downward spiral of Saul. But I think these verses that I just walked through really capture the downside of the ark that is his kingship coming to an end. Contrasted when we first read of him and his rise being king, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Matt Rexford back at the beginning of March, he did a message uh, on chapter nine of 1 Samuel where he talked about Saul coming and becoming king and being anointed and that whole sort of thing. This is actually some of the highlights of that. Saul comes to Ramah. I think we have it, there it is. Yeah, Saul comes to Ramah. Saul comes to a well and asks for directions to find Samuel. That's back in chapter nine, verse 11. There in chapter 10, Saul prophesies with a group of prophets. We're told in verse 11 of chapter 10 that the people marveled. Is Saul also among the prophets? And then in chapter 11, we read that the spirit comes on Saul and invests him with authority. Now keep that there and let's contrast it with what we just read. Saul comes back to Ramah. Saul comes to a well and asks for directions to find Samuel. Saul prophesies with a group of prophets. But people aren't marveling. People are joking. Is Saul also among the prophets? Because the spirit comes on Saul and divests him of his clothes. He's literally laying on the ground naked, a joke to people as they walk by. A humiliating fall that does not happen all at once, but as Charlie reminded us a few weeks ago, do you remember this message? I thought it was so good. 
one degree off over a period of time will really alter your trajectory. Which brings me back to envy and jealousy. I realize you aren't hurling spears. You're not so envious that you're plotting someone's murder. But the one degree could lead to lots of degrees. So what would the Holy Spirit possibly be saying to you today in regards to a subtle or not so subtle thought that is echoing in your mind. This thought, three words, God owes me. And again, it might not be the prevailing thought. You might think it's just about wishing you had what someone else has, the life that someone else is living. But it's so much deeper than that. And acknowledging that it's deeper than that is a step in actually seeing true lasting life change in this area of our lives. Calling it out for what it is. That's what I said earlier. It's like envy and jealousy could be crouching there at any point in time and it can pop up. What are you gonna do with it when it does? I do think the rise of all things social media has brought envy and jealousy even more to the forefront. I mean, what did we do before we spent all the time that we spend on our phones looking at everybody's life? I heard this great line in a country song yesterday. I just wanted to throw it in. It's not in my notes. Everybody's on their phone, but nobody's talking. That's real good, write that down, that's a tweet. Anyway, if you have kids, I think you're probably constantly having this conversation with them. If you're not having this conversation and you have kids, be having this conversation with them. Especially if you have teenagers or whatever that are on any type of social media that are spending their time seeing about everybody else and what their life is. A few years ago, I was speaking at a summer camp to a few hundred high school students. In the mornings, they would have these breakout sessions and my lovely wife, Jen, she did a breakout session and the topic was envy and jealousy. And they tell you this morning, you can choose between all these things and Jen Malone's gonna do a talk on envy and jealousy. And I stopped in to listen and she totally crushed it, but the space was packed out with teenagers. Why? Because it's a constant issue. Comparison, comparison, comparison. I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I had. Here's what I've learned through the years of walking with people. One degree off in the middle school and high school years in regards to envy and jealousy, where it's not talked about, where it's not processed, where it's not repented of when it needs to be repented of, where you're not discipled through it. Let me tell you where that goes over time when you're one degree like that as a middle schooler and a high schooler. It becomes conversation after conversation that I seem to be having with people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. Struggling with envy and jealousy, not over a certain thing or person, but simply bitter and angsty about the life, the hand they were dealt because they really do think God owes me better than I've gotten out of this life. That's the conversation I have a good bit. Proverbs 14:30 tells us this. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. The NLT says um, jealousy is a cancer of the bones. Over a period of time, not dealt with, acknowledged, repented of, discipled through, envy and jealousy will literally eat you up 
physically and spiritually. Because with envy, it's not just that you're jealous of someone else and what they have. You're not just jealous of their life. It's that you actually resent them and the life that they have. That's how it starts to eat you up. When you find yourself constantly unhappy when people are happy, when you find yourself being happy when you observe people that you're envious of struggling, it's not the way of Jesus. And here's the, the one degree off that led to being way off. If at the heart of envy and jealousy is the idea that you think, I think God owes me, then guess who over time you aren't interested in running to anymore? That's right. The one who you think owes you and didn't deliver. And that end game is someone who's sitting there very bitter and angsty about life. The Jesus on Display podcast is produced right here at Fellowship Greenville in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Follow and share this podcast with anyone who might be interested or curious about our church community or how storytelling unites us and helps us feel more connected. To actively keep up with what's going on at our church, head to our website at fellowshipgreenville.org. Follow us on all social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. Grace and peace to you for your week. We'll see you next time.